Hey, good morning, everybody. Today we have Aaron with us, who we just realized is in the exact same city as me, just up the road. Aaron, how are you doing today? Really good. Very nice. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. What are you drinking this morning? So uh, I started with coffee, but that wasn't enough. So now I am adding tea on top of my coffee. Awesome. What kind of tea are you drinking? Oh, I got this awesome uh, jasmine green tea. There's a place uh, not far from both of us here in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area, uh, downtown in Ann Arbor, that uh, is a sort of a specialty tea shop. And they've got this amazing jasmine green tea that I love. So, Oh, that sounds fantastic. You have me beat this morning. I'm drinking Duncan, Duncan <laughs> drip coffee. So today we have Professor Aaron Ahuvio with us. So Aaron, tell me a little bit about yourself. I understand that you're an author as well. You just wrote a book. Yeah, uh, I just wrote, uh, published a book with Little Brown. Uh, it's called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And from a marketing perspective, it's really explaining brand love and how brand love works at a psychological level. It's not limited to brands. The book talks about a lot of different things that people love, uh, brands, products, things people make themselves, nature, hobbies, activities. But if you're interested in brand love, the psychological process and what the reasons are why people love things, uh, it's all part of the same process. Absolutely. So before we dive into the topic, I was just curious, what was it like uh, publishing a book? What was the process like, you know, starting from the initial thought of, hey, mm -hmm. I have this idea, I want to expand on it more, all the way through the editing process to finally getting it published? That This is really fun. So we have, for the audio listeners, so they know, there's also a video version of this available. Um, and I say that because I'm about to show you something. First, I'm going to show you that on my lap, I have my wonderful dog, Noodle. <laughs> Hi, Noodle. Then I'm going to show you that behind me, and this was not a setup. You had no idea that I had this thing. I have this. <laughs> to look closely at it. Oh, my gosh. Is a timeline of writing the book. So it starts out when I first think about the idea of writing a book. And it's just a huge, for those of you who can't see what I'm holding, it's a, a, a was at one point a piece of wood that was about eight feet long and four inches wide. And now it's covered with paper. And the paper is a timeline that goes year by year by year by year of the process of writing the book all the way through. So I've given this process some thought. A couple things for people if you're considering such a process. One thing that I learned right off, I thought that you're supposed to like write the book and then you send the book to people. That's not true. That's not what they want, uh, at least for a nonfiction book. So the publishers it used to be you could send your book to them and they would read a little bit of it and then tell you they weren't going to publish it. But now they won't even look at it. You have to send it to an agent. And from an economist point of view, if you're looking at this as an economist would, it's very interesting because the publishers tell the agents that if they send them too many books that they don't like, they're going to cut off the agent. They won't take submissions from the agent anymore. And what this does is it outsources the initial uh, cut process. The agent 
doesn't want to send anything to the publisher unless the agent's really sure the publisher's going to like it. So the agent plays the role of rejecting all of these initial submissions. So what happened with my book is I spent seven years. I have a fabulous agent, Esmond Harmsworth um, at Evidas Creative, and he's amazing, did an amazing job, but he was not going to take this book to a publisher until he was damn sure that, that people would like it. So I spent seven years working on a book proposal, which is a fairly in-depth document. It includes a good chunk of every chapter and until he felt that the proposal was good enough. Then when he took the proposal to the publishers, there was a lot of interest. Uh, we had interest from Harvard Business Review, uh, Harvard Publishing. We had interest as I chose eventually with Little Brown, a number of others. So, uh, and, and they were able to, at that point, give me a contract, give me an advance. Took another two years full-time work um, I had a sabbatical, so this was really working 10 hours a day, six days a week, another two years to actually write the book. Uh, and it just came out uh, a month ago. And so that's what the, the process is like. I would also say that I thought that the work would kind of mostly be over when I turned in the final draft and the publisher said, this is good, but actually, Promoting the book falls mainly to the author, and that's another full-time job. And so you are very busy after it comes out uh, doing all sorts of promotional work, such as this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> How many podcasts have you been on today? Uh, today, this is the first of two. Um, I've done about 20, 25, 26 podcasts in the past couple of weeks. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, do you enjoy the interview process? Have you found oh, any it. like creative, creative questions that are being asked that you hadn't even thought of before starting this tour? Absolutely. And uh, it's fun to talk about my work. You know, my wife is sick of hearing about it. I can't tell her about it anymore. She won't, she's heard it all too many times. So or now there's the door. fresh fresh victims who I can talk about my work with and uh, who haven't heard it so many times before and are actually interested. So that's a real pleasure. So for listeners who don't know anything about brand love, just give them a brief, you know, one or two sentences about, you know, what that topic means. Yeah. So the idea is that people love all kinds of things, right? We obviously love other people, but there are activities we love to do, and there are objects that we own, and there are products and brands that we own, excuse me, that we love. And brand love really, it, the name you would think, it means that it's only if you love a brand, but really what brand love means is uh, when you love something a marketer cares about. So it could be their brand, it could be a product, it could be a service. Um, Forgive me, someone needs to go out. Excuse me. No, you're good. No worries. Out you go, Noodle. Sounds like they run the house. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, if there's if there's anything that uh, you know, the person who's a marketer, if you if you're working for a charity and you're a fundraiser for a charity, 
or you've got uh, and you run an association, you're trying to build membership for your association, right? um, then people's love for your cause or your charity or your association, all of that counts uh, as brand love. The role it usually plays is uh, a KPI, a key progress indicator. So in that sense, it's very similar to customer satisfaction or net promoter score. All of these are things that businesses will measure on an ongoing basis. Uh, to, you know, what is that average level of customer satisfaction with this particular product or brand or product line? And they'll measure that over time. And hopefully that goes up. You want that number to go up. And if it goes up, the marketing people are happy and get a bonus. And if it you know, doesn't go up, they're not happy. Uh, so you could measure any of those things. You could also measure brand love as uh, something that you would uh, want to track over time. And the advantage of that is that brand love for certain kinds of products and certain types of marketing strategies does a phenomenally good job of predicting the things that marketers care about. Things like repeat purchase, word of mouth, uh, word of mouse on the internet, right? Uh, the, the, the tendency to defend the brand. So that's very important now. Uh, on social media, people will say things that are critical of a brand. If you say something bad about Apple, you know that there's going to be a thousand Apple lovers who are going to jump down your throat and tell you why you're wrong and why Apple is so great. It's interesting. And, and that actually pays off for the brand a lot. So having people who are willing to be evangelists for your brand and defend your brand online for you uh, is one of the things that you get um, from brand love. Uh, and similarly, if satisfaction was very high, you might have some of that net promoter, which is a measure of how likely people are, how, they, how much they intend to say something good about your brand to other people, net promoter, also tends to have that kind of a characteristic, but brand love gives you a much richer picture uh, of, of why people, how people feel about your brand. So let's say I'm a, I'm a new business owner. Mm -hmm. This whole topic is completely new to me. You know, what are some simple steps that they can take to start to build the online community or start to you know, generate that type of discussion around their product or their service. Right. So if you're a, a new business, a small business owner, there's a number of things that, that you want to focus on. I'll, there's two, and I'll address them in sort of random order. The first thing you have to realize is that people's brain is hardwired to pay attention to people more than other things. We really have evolved as animals to focus on other people. And if you're a small business owner, the customers are gonna focus on you. You already knew that to a certain extent, but however much you think it's true, it's more true. And your relationships with these other, you know, with your customers um, are going to be key to your success. And some of that is the social aspect of your relationship, but some of it is just that they feel you're dependable and trustworthy and your, your products will work and you'll stand behind your products. All that it gets wrapped up under the 
uh, quality of the relationship because it's about you and how you're going to behave if something goes wrong or if they need a special favor from your business in some way. So focusing on the quality of those relationships is particularly important. If you are Procter & Gamble, that's still true. They hire salespeople. Why do they hire salespeople? They hire salespeople so there's a human being there that create a relationship with you know, the manager of that Target store where they're selling their, their products. And so there's some sort of a human to human contact there. But a brand like Procter & Gamble is gonna be a little bit more anonymous. If you're a small brand, it's gonna be a little bit more personal for you. So that's one of the things you need to realize. The other thing that not all small businesses really get is that you need to pick a target market. It doesn't matter, um, excuse me, what I meant is it, you're not only gonna sell to this target market. If you pick people who, you know, some very specific, let me think of an example. All right, so you're running a restaurant and you wanna say, I'm really gonna focus on people who want to eat healthier, but are in a hurry and have you know, a budget of a certain amount, et cetera. And that, that's, the, that's the customer. And these people already have these beliefs. They believe certain things about food and what have you, right? You're gonna to sell to a lot of people who aren't in that target market. They're gonna come by, they're gonna see your restaurant, they're gonna walk in. So don't think that you're somehow limiting yourself by having a clear idea of who this target market is. But you need to pick some very particular group of people that want something from you as a business. You're not picking them because they're the same age. You're not picking them because they're the same gender or the same race. You're picking them because they, there's some desire that they have in terms of the products and services you offer. That, and that's what they have in common. They want the same kind of product or service from you. So you get to know them very well and you just make them so happy. You, you, may, you thrill them. And what'll happen is by thrilling a small group of people, they'll tell their friends and it will radiate outward and you'll get more and more people coming. So you can look at this with SUVs, for example. Uh, SUVs started to become popular now, they were for a long time only something that was driven by people who actually had a need to go off-road. And that was the whole point of an SUV, was that you, could go, you didn't need a road, you could drive it across the countryside or what have you. And that was a very, very small market. <laughs> Auto manufacturers realized that there was another target market that they could make happy. And this was a group of people, mostly men, who needed the practicality of a station wagon or a minivan. Those things had util practical utility for them, but those didn't fit their identity. Those were wussy cars for wussy people as these men sought, right? Yeah. Not saying those really are. I have a lot of respect for station wagons and minivans. But uh, the, in the minds of those consumers, those early SUV consumers, you know, those weren't the cars for them in terms of their image and their sense of identity. And so 
what they were able to do, the, the auto manufacturers were able to do was pitch an SUV as a car that had a lot of the same functional utility as a station wagon or a minivan, but was rugged and masculine and exciting. And so that really connected with this group of guys. Um, and they started to love these cars. They fell madly in love with, with these cars. And what happened is because they had so much enthusiasm, it started to radiate out and more and more people became interested. I remember uh, some years after the minivan fad, some fad trend, I should say, because it's continued, right, started, yep. my mom, um, bless her soul, she's now 92 years old. Uh, at this point, she was 70 something, um, maybe 80 something, I forget. And she came to me and said, my next car should be an SUV. I'm in this, <laughs> I'm in this water, this water aerobics class with the other seniors. We go into the pool and we do aerobics in the water. And all the other 79-year-old ladies in the water aerobics class, they all tell me that SUVs are the greatest cars and they're all getting one. And I should get one too. There is no conceivable universe in which the women in that water aerobics class need an, need an SUV. It's, it's ridiculous. But the popularity had started with a particular group of people and spread out in such a way that now it was reaching these other people who uh, you know, were sort of being swept along by the coattails, if you will. So for small business owners, I think a lot of them are reluctant to really focus on a particular target market because they feel it's limiting, but it's not limiting. It is your ticket to success. Yeah, it builds identity. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. I feel like a lot of people don't talk as much about word of mouth marketing as they should now. I feel like a lot of people, like you said, they're focused on pushing out content, you know, pushing out whatever they can, rather than engaging with the audience that they already have or they could have. You know, that's one thing we tell people all the time. You know, we understand you have a LinkedIn business page. That's amazing. It's good to share some valuable information. How often are you engaging with people who follow it? You know, are you doing a networking event every week? You have to find other ways to, you know, communicate other than just pushing stuff at people and expecting them to buy it. Right. And if you can connect with people in multiple ways, that creates a stronger relationship. So if you can connect to someone face to face in some situations, through email in other situations, through social media in other situations, you know, maybe they listen to your podcast as well in certain situations, the more different touch points you have, it gives the consumer a sense that the feeling is, that, excuse me, the relationship is multidimensional. Yep. And that really increases their, their sense of love uh, for the, the brand. I do wanna just throw in one other thing here as I'm talking that is uh, a point that might be useful to some listeners. The word love means a lot of different things. 
So sometimes people will say like, oh, I love your haircut, right? And all they mean by that is nice haircut. <laughs> it's a really good haircut. I'm talking about love, I mean something more than that. However, the word love also in, in many situations means a very, very strong connection to a person or a product. While that is true, the way I taught use brand love and talk about brand love, we can measure the strength of someone's connection. And those measurements range from no connection at all, a little bit of a connection, a moderate connection, all the way through to a very strong connection. So even if your product isn't something that people are going to sort of love the way they might love their Apple cell phone, their iPhone, they're still going to fall somewhere on this continuum in terms of the strength of their connection. And you don't need for customers to have that intense a connection. They only need to have more of a connection to you than they do to the competition. So if you have a product that you know, doesn't inspire that strong of a connection all the time, that's still, it's still worth finding out how people feel about it because they're comparing you to the competition and they're gonna go with the brand that they have the stronger connection to, even if it's kind of mild for all of the different brands in that arena. I think that's such a fascinating point too. You know, how, how often do you see like a business identify a niche has nothing to do with their product or service. It has to do with them as a person or what they're passionate about. They somehow find a way to incorporate that into their service, into their product, and then you see tons of sales come in for them. You know, one of the things that we hear all the time is that people want to work with, you know, other like-minded people. There's so many, there are so many people out there offering the same service as you. How can you just differentiate yourself and make yourself a good person to work with? So there's there's a number of things that you're doing that 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 this might entail that, right? So one yeah. is, again, if you're a, a small business, those social relationships, your sense of connection between you as a human, people's love for your brand is really gonna be about their love for you. And again, that doesn't mean that they love you like they love their spouse kind of love. It just means that they have an emotional connection to you and they trust you and, and they have a sense that there is a relationship there, that you know who they are and they know who you are. Many times people build those uh, businesses through social networks. So you'll have someone who is a real estate agent and they get 80% of their business from their church, say. Their, their work as a real estate agent is nothing to do with religion and other people who aren't part of their church could be customers or they you know, could be their competition, but that's just their social network. They're involved in that group. Those people know them. They know that, you know, they know those people. And so it, it, that becomes part of their identity. And that works well for, you know, very small individual level businesses. If your business starts to grow and you want to branch out, that doesn't continue to work that well. So you need to find other ways of connecting with people and getting people to connect with your brand. 
um, that aren't based just on like your individual personality and, and their connection to that. That's a fantastic point. Well, Aaron, we're getting towards the end here. I could talk with you for days, for weeks. <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I really appreciate your time. You know, I just want to give you a little bit of time at the end here to talk about where people can find your book and uh, where else people can find you online. Fantastic. So once again, the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Um, I'm pleased to say that it was uh, awarded the, uh, or a best nonfiction award by Amazon. So it's getting uh, very good reviews. Um, on Amazon now, it has all, this is like 26 review, 25 of them are five-star reviews. And they're not all by my mother or family. There's some other people who've actually left, left some of those reviews as well. Uh, if you want to connect, uh, I've got a website called Brand Love Central, and you can find sort of the business stuff there. I also have an, another website, there's another angle to this, which is not people who are interested in marketing necessarily, but just people who love cooking or gardening and want to understand what all that's about. Uh, I have another website called The Things We Love for that type of interested person. So you can kind of sort yourself do you want the business approach or do you just want the interesting uh, psychology approach? I've got both of those going. And I'd be really happy to hear from anyone uh, who's interested. I do a lot of consulting. And if this is something you want to follow through on, um, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Um, and of course, anything else you need to know. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Aaron. I know all that will be linked in the description as well if you're listening or watching. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you again for your time. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This was one of my favorite conversations we had so far. Um, and I'll see you again soon. That's a, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. So another point that might be of interest to some listeners, uh, if you're around southeastern Michigan, I just wanted to mention that we have a, a new program at the Dearborn campus of the University of Michigan, University of Michigan Dearborn, which is a master's program in marketing that is a one-year full-time equivalent. So most people who take it, take it part-time. You could take it full-time. If you took it full-time, you'd be done in a year. Uh, it's similar to an MBA. Basically, it's all the marketing stuff out of an MBA with a, with a little bit of other things, but not so much. And you could even, if you were interested in such a thing, you could take the one-year uh, marketing master's, get the master's degree, take a year or two off, come back, enroll in the MBA program, and just take the other courses that you're missing and eventually get the MBA degree on top of that. So if that's interesting to listeners, uh, check out the University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business. It's a really innovative program. <laughs>